Well, it is good to be with you, Trinity. So, so I'm really thankful that we were able, um, by God's grace and through your graciousness to us, be able to use your building um, during, during the pandemic. It was a real blessing for us, and it really enabled us to stay together as, as a church. And uh, now that we're Risen Christ Fellowship, we're back in our building in Germantown, and the Lord has been really kind to uh, bring new people and to grow our church, and um, just really thankful for your partnership in, in the gospel, and it's just a blessing to be able to, to share God's word with y'all this morning. Um, as uh, Pastor Josh said, this is a gospel refresh, and refreshment is something that I think we all need. You know, I know I need it. You know, when we think about the normal cares of everyday life, from a global pandemic to political strife and divisions in the church and so forth, there's things that are constantly seeking to draw our attention away from what scripture calls that which is of first importance, which is the gospel. That's the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which we were just singing about, and, and the implication of the gospel in our lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time in Philippians, and as we do so, may the Lord refresh our souls in that old, old story. Um, our first uh, message today is going to be from Philippians 2, and just a little bit of background, I'm sure many of you know this, but just to set the context for where we are in the letter. Philippians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church at Philippi. And so we learn in Acts chapter 16, verse 12, that Philippi was one of the major cities in Macedonia, which is modern day Greece. Uh, we also learn from Acts chapter 16 that on Paul's second missionary journey, the Apostle, along with Timothy and Silas, they encountered some women praying by the river. And so the Apostle Paul shares the gospel with them, and there's a woman named Lydia who was converted, and it was there that the church at Philippi was born. And so this letter was written about 10 years after Lydia's conversion. And by this point, the church had been established with elders and deacons. We see that in Philippians 1, verse 1. It was a thriving church, and they actually became the primary financial supporters of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And so the Apostle Paul, he addresses a number of different things in the letter, but no matter what he's talking about, the theme that permeates this letter is joy. Philippians is the epistle of joy. Joy or rejoicing is mentioned 15 times in this short letter. Now what's interesting is that this letter, the theme is joy, and at the same time, it was written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison. So the Apostle Paul is in chains in prison, and yet the theme of the letter is joy. How is that possible? How do you reconcile those two things? And the short answer is the gospel, because the gospel is also a theme that permeates the letter. The gospel shaped how the Apostle Paul viewed suffering. It shaped how he viewed preaching. It shaped how he viewed life and death and everything. 
So Philippians 1.21, famous verse says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so it's as we see Christ as the center that we'll experience true and lasting joy. And so today, we're actually going to begin with the passage that anchors the entire letter, which is Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. And I'm going to go ahead and read the passage and then pray and then we'll dive in. So Philippians 2, I'm going to begin at verse 5. At the end of the reading, I'm going to say, this is God's word. And if you agree, can you please say, thanks be to God. By the way, let me just say, I will not be offended if you say amen at any time (laughs) during this message, if you agree with something. So I'm from a kind of back and forth call and response. I'm not not putting that pressure on you. I'm just letting you know, I won't be offended if someone says amen, if you agree. I might actually be encouraged, but that's all okay. Okay, (laughs) Philippians chapter two, beginning at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And Father, we do pray that you would refresh our souls this morning in the gospel as we Look at your son and what he has accomplished for us. Lord, we pray that you would give us attentive hearts and minds, and we pray that you would be magnified in our time together. And in this time, Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God, that you would do it for the glory of your name and for our joy in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 So here in this passage, we see one of the clearest examples of the person and work of Christ in the entire Bible. Uh, It's known in some circles as the Christ hymn. And because evidently it was a, a song that was sang by the early church. And in this text, I want us to Uh, zoom in on three things about the Lord Jesus. First, his pre-existence. Second, his humiliation. And third, his exaltation. His pre-existence, 
his humiliation, and his exaltation. First, his pre-existence. In this passage, we start as high as we can possibly, possibly be. And what's going to happen is from, from these great heights, we're going to slowly come down and descend to as low as we could possibly be. And then we want to go right back up to as high as we can possibly be. We can't start any higher. He was, verse 6, in the form of God. The existence of the Lord Jesus Christ did not begin at his birth. It did not begin at his conception. But the Lord Jesus is the eternal Son of God. John 17, 5, the Lord Jesus prays now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we see form here in verse 6 that usually refers to the outward shape of something, but here, it means something more than that. And we know that because what we know about God is that God is spirit, right? In his, in his essential nature, he's spirit. He does not have physical form or extension in space. And yet here, it speaks of the form of God. How can you speak of the form of one who is formless? Well, form speaks to the invisible qualities or attributes that make God who he is. So when it says that Jesus was in the form of God, what it's saying is that everything that is true of God the Father is also equally true about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So is God eternal and self-existent with the power of being within himself? So is Jesus. John 8, 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, what? I am. am. Is God all-knowing? So is Jesus. John 21, 17, we confess with Peter, Lord, you know all things. Is God all-wise? That is, not only knowledgeable, but he has the skill to perfectly apply what he knows in the best way possible in every situation. So is Jesus. Colossians 2.3 tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Is God omnipotent, all-powerful? So is Jesus. Philippians 3.22, it speaks of Jesus having the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So everything that is true of God the Father is equally true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a powerful statement of the deity of Christ, the godness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to remember that this was being written less than 30 years after Jesus' death, after he walked the earth. So can you just imagine saying these high, grandiose, glorious things about someone who died in 1992? There would have been people around 
who could have verified or checked whether or not what this person was saying is actually true. And so this is where we are. This is the Lord Jesus. This is, this is the foundation of our faith. This is the object of our faith. This is the one that we, that we look to for everything, and we see that it starts as high as we could possibly go. But then what we see is we begin in verse 6. We see the descent begin. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he did not hold on to his eternal exalted position in the universe. And the reason behind the descent is that humanity has a great problem. That is the problem of sin. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It began in the garden with our first father, Adam, and it, it has continued throughout fallen humanity ever since. And this brings us to the bad news that we all have to reckon with, which is that we've sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory, and we need a savior. And God, in, in his justice, has promised to punish all sin. He's promised that he will by no means clear the guilty. And so for all of us, the law stands against us. And if we were to try to stand before God on our own, we would all be condemned. This is the bad news. The good news is that at the same time that God is just and holy and righteous, he's also loving and gracious and merciful. And in his mercy, he's done the unthinkable. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to come into this world and to live the perfect life that we could never live. To die on the cross as a substitute for all who would place their trust in him. And to be raised from the grave, completely vindicating his name and demonstrating that everything that he said was absolutely factual and true. And what we're going to see in this, in this passage is that Jesus is coming back. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. And so this is the reason for the descent. This is the reason why God has, has made the, it's just, what a choice for God to make in, in order to redeem us. For Jesus to come down from his high, exalted, eternal position. And please understand that it's an infinite bridge that Jesus had to cross in order to get to us, right? It's infinite, the, the, the gap between holy God and fallen man is an infinite gap. And so, so we might want to ask the question, okay, he begins his descent in his grace, praise God. So as he comes down, where does he stop? Does he stop at Archangel? Like Michael? No, he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Does he stop at regular angel? <laughs> Whatever that is? No, he doesn't stop there. Cherubim, seraphim? No, he doesn't stop there. Okay, how, how far is he going to go? Well, in our text, we see verse 7, he was born in the likeness of men. 
So he comes down, he, a human being. Okay, next question. Well, what kind of human being? Is he an earthly king? A prime minister? A rich and famous celebrity? An earthly ruler? No. How far down does he go? It says, verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He was a humble human being, a lowly human being. He didn't have much fame. He didn't have much, in, in, much of anything that would attract us to him. And we see here that in the same breath as as scripture affirms the full deity of Christ, it also affirms the full humanity of Christ. So, so that form is applied to birth both realities, the, the form of God and the form of a servant. So he's both God and he's, and he's a human being. What does it mean that he was fully human? It means that he had a brain. It means that he had a particular eye color. He had a particular skin color. He had a particular height and weight. He sweat. He slept. He spoke a real human language. He laughed. He cried. He experienced real human emotions. He didn't just appear to be human. He was fully human. And the only difference, and this is a major difference between his humanity and ours, is that his humanity was a sinless humanity. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yeah. And so you see this mysterious combination of two realities in one person. Fully God. Fully man the God-man. Everything that God is, according to Colossians 2.9, dwells in Christ bodily. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. I like this quote from John Owen from The Glory of Christ. He says this, he says, fix it in mind that this glory of Christ, and he's talking about this fully God, fully man, this glory of Christ in the constitution of his person is the best, most noble, useful, beneficial object that we can have in our thoughts and affections. This, what we're talking about, he says, it's the best, most noble, useful, beneficial object that we can have in our thoughts and affections. In other words, there's, there's nothing greater than what we could be, than what we're talking about right now. This is why we have minds. We, God gave us minds so that we would think about this. Owen continues, he says, it should be a great rebuke to us if much time goes by in a day where we don't think about Jesus at all. It should be a great rebuke to us if much time goes by in a day where we don't think about Jesus at all. 
And that just brings me back to my introduction, just talking about all the cares of this world, right? All, all the things that we have going on in our lives, if we're not careful, they can drown out and smother what we're supposed to be focused on, what we're supposed to be considering and meditating on and where our affections should be. And how often are we satisfied with far less than this, right? Whether it's social media, whether it's sports, whether it's hobbies and activities, those things are all fine and they all have their place. But not in place of this, not to the detriment or the exclusion of considering and meditating on what our minds were created to meditate on, which is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think we're going to be thinking about in heaven? We're going to be thinking about Jesus all day, every day, for all eternity. Why not start now? Why, 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 not, why not begin to, to, to tune our hearts and our minds to the activity that's going to consume us for all eternity? And his humility, therefore, is tied into his humanity and the kind of person that he became. Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no form or majesty to him. In other words, he was just a regular dude. And in, in terms of his outward appearance. And, you know, a lot of times I think when we, when we read the, the Gospels and we, we're looking at the, the person and work of Christ, we tend to read his exaltation back into the text so that as, we, as we're reading and thinking about Jesus going about doing these things, like, we tend to think that he, he had the Shekinah glory on him as he was doing these things. But that's not the case. He was, he was, he was a, a first century Jew. And it blows my mind to think that had I been back then at that time and there was a crowd of people and the Lord Jesus was in the crowd and I just kind of scanned the crowd and surveyed, I would not have been able to pick him out because he was, he was, he was a human being. He, he, he blended in. It, was, it, it wasn't his, his, his physical appearance that separated him. It was his character and his works and his teaching and what he did. And so as we continue down to, uh, he, uh, he was a, a lowly human being, we keep going. It doesn't even stop there because he entered humanity on his way to death. So Jesus predicted his Death over and over again. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So it's the death of the Lord Jesus that explains the purpose of the birth of the Lord Jesus. It's his death that explains the purpose of his birth. And his death had a purpose, which we just talked about, which was to save his people from their sins. That's why he came into the world. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so as we continue down, the, so 
So he's going down into humanity, into as a lowly human, and then as a human being who died, it goes even lower as we consider the kind of death that he died. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so his humiliation is seen in the kind or type of death that he died, crucifixion. One of the worst forms of excruciating torture that fallen man has ever come up with. Reserved for criminals. It was beneath a Roman citizen to receive this form of death. It gets no more humiliated, naked, on a cross, bloody, beaten, exposed for all to see. You ever think about that? Why, why, why did God send the Lord Jesus into the world at a time when this was the form of execution, into a culture where that was the form of execution? Not lethal injection, not some of the more sanitized, humane ways, humane ways that we put people to death, but crucifixion. How low can you go? Is it, is it not to, to display his extravagant love? The, 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 the greatest form, one of the greatest forms of, of human suffering imaginable, God chooses to expose his son to this? Is it not that he would be, I mean, evidently he determined that he would be more glorified in this way of death than in another way of death. And it speaks to how far the Lord Jesus was willing to go to glorify his father and to bring his people to himself. And, and we'll talk more about it in in the next message, but it, it, this has to be personal for us, right? In, in order for us to, to truly taste and experience all the, the benefits of what Christ accomplished, it has to move from this is something that this historical person did at one time uh, long ago for uh, this kind of mass of humanity, Jesus did that. It has to move from that to, he did it for me. <laughs> he, he, he died for me personally. He knows me by name. So, so, so we're, not, we're, not, we're not saved by having information about God and, and knowing the facts, but we're saved when we embrace the reality of what Christ has done for us. And it's a personal thing. If you are in Christ this morning, the Lord Jesus had you specifically on his mind when he went to Calvary. And because of that, we can trust him no matter what happens in our lives, because the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, so the love that he had for you, 
from all eternity that manifested itself when he died on the cross, that love for you has not changed. It's the same. And sometimes, and I, and I know this experientially, we can go through situations that are hard in our lives, and it can immediately cause us to question, does God love me the way that he says that he loves me? I know my sinful temptation is to immediately, when, something, when, when trials show up, like, okay, what did I do? <laughs> I did something to offend him. He's not happy with me anymore. He's, he's not pleased with me. But what Calvary teaches us is that the love of God for his people in Christ, it never fails. It never changes. It remains the same. Though our circumstances are haywire and go all over the place. But what we must do is continually return back to this this work of Christ that he has accomplished on our behalf. So much more could be said there, but let's, uh, as we close this message, let's consider finally his exaltation. Verse 9, so, so we've gone down to the depths, we've sunk as far as we could possibly sink, and now in verse 9 we see <laughs> the ascent. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and I love this. I, I love the, the, this great reversal where we have the Lamb who's come meekly. Praise be to God for that. But on the other side of that is the lion. Is, is, is Christ returning in triumph. And do you notice that it says that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. So, so that's, that's all knees without exception will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, terrorist knees will bow, atheist knees will bow, Muslim knees, Hindu knees, Taoist knees, New Age knees, all knees will bow before this king. There's, there's a woman who is near and dear to my heart. Her name is Kathleen. And when I was a new believer, um, there, there was a, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. So it was, a, a friend of mine said, I'm brand new believer, so this is like my first year in Christ. And a friend of mine says, who was working down at City Hall, he said, Shai, why don't you come and um, there's this study happening and uh, there's this woman who is just, uh, just spirit-filled and and I, I go to this study on my, on, my, uh, on my lunch breaks. And so I say, okay. So I go, and, and I'm there for a couple weeks. I'm just, I'm just enjoying it, just, just studying God's word, led, led by this sister named Kathleen. And about a couple weeks later, I kind of, my, my friend, the guy who invited me, he stopped coming. 
And I look around, and, and I'm the only guy there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bunch of women. And it dawned on me, wait a minute, is this a women's Bible study? <laughs> and so I pull Kathleen to the side, and I say, Kathleen, is this a women's study? And she says, well, yeah, it is. Um, you know, but you were so enthusiastic, shy, we didn't, we didn't want to discourage you. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've been coming to this women's Bible study. But this woman, Kathleen, one, one of the godliest people I've ever met in my life, and she was a South Philly Italian, like old school South Philly Italian lady. And like, whatever comes to mind when you think about that, like, <laughs> yes, that's, that's what she was. Hairstyle and everything. And, and she told this story one time about how, as a believer working in City Hall amongst lawyers and judges as a clerk, um, she was very open about her faith and she, got, she didn't get treated well. She was, she was mistreated because of her openness. There was just, just hostility towards her because of her, her profession. And she said that, that the judge and, and the lawyers would, would literally berate her, yelling at the top of their voices in front of other people, meant to embarrass her all the time. This was a regular occurrence. And, and she said that one, one day, as, as a judge was just kind of kind of unloading on her, she said that it occurred to her to do nothing but look down at his knees. And the way she encouraged her heart was knowing that one day those knees are going to bow before Jesus. So if there's anybody in your life persecuting you for your faith or mocking you because of your Christianity, treated unfairly, unjustly, just look at their knees. Look at their knees because that knee is going to bow before the Lord Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, I want to encourage you to turn there. We see where the Apostle Paul gets the language that he's using in Philippians 2. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. It says, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Sound familiar? We see the Lord Jesus speaking in Isaiah, through Isaiah, 700 years before he came. Goes back to his pre-existence. Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege 
to bend the knee now. And I want to exhort you, if you are not a Christian this morning, that the time is going to come when we all have to stand before God. And God, in his mercy and in his kindness, has given you an opportunity to trust him. Not wait until that day when everyone will be forced to bow, but to embrace today what Christ has done in the gospel. Believing that he died on the cross for your sins, turning from your sins, trusting that he's risen from the grave. And he promises that if you believe in him, if you believe that message, that you will receive the gift of eternal life. And so let, let, us, let us bend the knee now and let us live lives that indicate a posture of bended knee before this Lord because he deserves it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you for this wondrous mystery. We thank you for the true and better Adam. Oh Lord, help us to fix our thoughts, to fix our minds on the Lord Jesus. May we not go too long in a day without considering Christ. And may we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. For the glory of your name we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.